0: Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I invite you to follow along. We're going to look at the first 10 verses first. (laughs) When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. When he was already not far not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health." So Jesus finishes His Sermon on the Plain that we looked at in chapter 6, and now He goes back to Capernaum. While He's there, this notable centurion sends to Jesus a delegation of Jewish elders. And I, I, I just find it interesting that a Roman centurion, a Gentile, has enough pull And enough respect among the elders that he could send Jewish elders to Jesus and they would do it for him. But they come on his behalf and they beg Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. Now, as we just read, Jesus heals the servant. But please understand that the emphasis of of this passage is on the centurion, not on the sick servant. Now, a centurion was a military leader in the Roman army, comparable to a lieutenant. Usually, well, we know the title centurion suggests he's in charge of how many men? A hundred men. And according to tradition, or what history teaches us, he was usually the best fighter of the hundred men, and that's why they would make him the centurion. The New Testament speaks of several centurions, And almost every time it speaks of them in a favorable way. For instance, the centurion at the cross of Christ. What did he say once Jesus died? Truly this man was the son of God. Yeah, proclaimed his faith that way. Cornelius of Acts chapter 10 and 11, the first Gentile convert. He was a centurion. He demonstrated full faith in Jesus. He and his house received the Holy Spirit and were baptized. Julius... In Acts chapter 27, he's the one that guarded Paul on the way to Rome, both a reasonable man and fair. There's only one centurion in Acts chapter 22 that we might view as a villain because he was about to flog and whip Paul. But he stopped when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen. So overall, our impression of centurions is pretty positive. They seem to be reasonable and unbiased and submitted to authority. But this centurion's servant was valued highly, it says here, which means he held a position of high honor. In fact, he's more than just a servant. I think he'd become like a son To the centurion. Now, normally in the Roman Empire, when a slave was unable to work, he was thrown out to die by his Roman lord. But not not here. This centurion is compassionate to his servant. And upon hearing of Jesus' reputation for healing, this centurion sends a delegation of Jewish elders to ask Jesus for help. Again, rare that Jews would go out of their way for a Gentile, but this is a rare Gentile. He had provided influence and likely most, if not all, of the money to help build the synagogue there at Capernaum. 2010, when we were there, we got to go to the synagogue at Capernaum, which is believed to have been built upon the very foundation or the very same place where The synagogue was that Jesus taught from, which may have been the very synagogue that this centurion had provided the funds for. This man even loved the nation of Israel. He showed his benevolence to the Jewish people. They believed in him. And now one good deed deserves another. And so they go to Jesus. Now this delegation of Jewish elders apparently overstepped their bounds at least maybe the centurion's desires when they ask Jesus to go to the man's house. So when Jesus gets not far from the house, a second delegation comprised of the centurion's personal friends is sent to keep Jesus from coming to the house. Their message was simple. Don't trouble yourself any further. In other words, you don't have to go all the way to the house. Now, I don't know if the centurion looked out a window and saw them getting close or if he heard the procession getting close, but he doesn't want Jesus to bother himself further by entering his home. I don't think he's just talking about the trouble of coming that much further into the house. I don't think he's talking about the fact that maybe his wife hadn't cleaned up the living room yet or whatever. I don't think it's anything like that. This centurion may have been looking out for Jesus' best interests, trying to protect Jesus' reputation, because if Jesus enters the house of a Gentile, what's going to happen? Well, the religious leaders are going to have a heyday with that one. Being a soldier, the centurion understands the power of the spoken word. Jesus doesn't need to be present. Jesus doesn't need to touch his servant. All Jesus needs to do simply is give the command. Speak the word. And the centurion believed that his servant would be healed. That's the nature of authority. He believed that Jesus could heal his dying servant without even coming into his home. Now really there's no precedent for believing in distance healing save the one incident when Jesus healed the nobleman's son in Capernaum when Jesus himself was 20 miles away in Cana, maybe this centurion had heard about that. I don't know. Nevertheless, his faith is astounding. And so he sends these words to Jesus by way of his friend saying, Hey, I say to this man, go and he goes, and to uh, this one, come and he comes. And I know all you have to say is, Be healed, and he'll be healed. That's the faith he's expressing. He makes that keen comparison between his military position and the spiritual position of Jesus and his Father. So when Jesus hears this, it says there in verse 9 that Jesus marveled at him and said to the multitude following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. There's only two times in the New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled or was amazed at someone. He marvels here at the incredible faith of a Gentile. And in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, in Nazareth, he marveled at the lack of faith of his own countrymen in his hometown. Isn't it interesting that the Jews who had the scriptures would lack faith, while the Gentiles would demonstrate great faith without the scriptures? I believe this centurion saw himself for who he really was. He was conscious of his own sin, and I think he saw Jesus as Jesus really was, the Son of God. I think he reasoned that one who has the power over life and death, someone that can heal with a word, must be divine. And if Christ was divine, then he, a Gentile sinner, was unworthy to have him come into his house, was unworthy to even meet him. This passage, I think, reveals two essential components of Christian faith. One is knowing who Christ is, and the other is knowing who we are. Do you know who and what you are? I pray that you do. Do you know and believe that you are unworthy? Do you know that according to Isaiah 64, 6, that all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags? You see, we've got to face the truth that apart from the grace of God, our hearts are desperately evil and self tends to be at the center of our universe, and therefore darkness can reign within us. The reality is that you and I, just like the centurion, we're not worthy. No one is. All of sin, all our acts of supposed righteousness, just won't cut it with God. And your only hope is the love and grace of Christ. So do you know who and what you are? But even more importantly, do you know who Christ is? Because Colossians 1.15 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. That's who Christ is. And do you see Him as your Savior? Again, Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood, shed on the cross. And that Philippians 2 passage that Greg read for our communion time is so powerful and attests to that. So do you see Jesus as your hope? He's the only way to eternal life. You see, biblical faith is an exercise in reality. In truly seeing, do you see yourself as you are and do you see Christ as He is? And if you do, then you're seen with the eyes of faith. And I believe that's how this centurion was able to see. But well, let's go on in verses 11 through 17. It came about soon afterwards that He went to a city called Nain, and His disciples were going along with Him, accompanied by a large multitude, Now, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, and fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. This is the first of three people that Jesus raised from the dead. The other two were Jairus' daughter, and of course his close friend, Lazarus. In the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet raised a widow's son from the dead, and here we see Jesus doing the same thing. So in a way, Jesus' ministry looks like the great prophet Elijah's. Now the raising of this widow's son, Nain, took place shortly after the healing of the centurion servant, very likely the very next day. The little village of Nain is about 25 miles southeast of Capernaum. It's just over the hill from Shunem where Elisha the prophet raised the son of the Shunemite woman. The only thing that remains of Nain today are the tombs just outside the city that were cut into the sides of the hills. And that may well have been where this crowd of people were heading with a tomb, headed to a tomb with this widow's son. This poor woman had lost her husband and now her only son, she is now left without anyone to support her financially. She has no means of living now because a job market for women whereby they might earn a living was just unheard of in those days. The whole village must feel for a large crowd is following the funeral procession out of the city, and as it comes out of the city, it meets another large crowd going into the city. The funeral procession, according to Galilean funeral customs, would be led by the mother with her her outer garment torn in grief. The other crowd, having traveled all day from Capernaum, is led by Jesus. And it probably seemed a little bit awkward and almost inappropriate to have a traffic jam just interfere with this funeral. In those days, burials would take place pretty soon, very soon, after the death of a person. Most likely less than 10 hours, because bodies in that climate could begin to decompose very quickly but they also believed that it would show dishonor to the one that died and to the family not to bury the body quickly. Jewish funerals were often surrounded by elaborate rituals such as a trumpet signal to announce the death, melancholy flute players that would play mournfully, and the tinkling of cymbals as well. And even the poorest Jews were expected to provide at least two flute players and one professional mourner who would wail and cry. They would be paid to do that, and most often it was a woman. The body would have its hair cut and the nails trimmed. It would be washed and anointed and wrapped in linen. Then it would be placed face up, usually on a wicker work, Frame that would be carried then. The arms would be folded across the chest. The friends and the family would carry the body through the town. They would take turns carrying it so that as many people as possible could share the honor of carrying the dead. The people of Nain would join the procession when it would pass their house. And if a person was physically unable to follow, they would at least stand up when the procession passed by. Funerals of that time were treated with the greatest reverence, partially out of reverence for God and partially due to Jewish superstitions, such as the idea that the spirit of the dead would hover about the unburied remains. Well, in verse 13, it says, When Jesus saw this woman, He felt compassion for her. And He said to her, Do not weep. Or stop weeping. Does that not sound like a strange command based on the circumstances? But the words that are used here for Jesus feeling compassion are words that indicate that what Jesus felt for this widow was very intense and deeply emotional. And so knowing what he was about to do, Jesus said, stop weeping. And I don't know if there was anything about the tone of his voice that would have caused that woman not to weep. I I can't help but think she continued to cry. But verse 14 says, Jesus went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, began to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, under normal circumstances, no Jew would have done what Jesus just did. There was no greater defilement for a Jew than to touch a dead body. But do the rules apply when the corpse comes back to life? Needless to say, I don't think the rabbis had any regulations to cover those circumstances. And the pallbearers are so shocked that someone would come up and touch the coffin, they just stop in their tracks. But at Jesus' command, the young man sets up and begins to talk. Now morticians and undertakers can tell you some pretty eerie stories about a body sitting up or moving due to gases that might still remain in the corpse, but I don't know of any of them that can tell you that one sat up and began to talk to him. All right. And I can't help but wonder, my warped mind, I guess, what did he talk about? I mean, he began to talk. What did he talk about? I mean, what did he say? Was it, where am I? Why am I dressed like this? What do you guys think you're doing? I don't know. Or was it, boy, that was a good nap. Or, you'll never believe where I've been. Or maybe, with his mother right in front, Mom, what's wrong? You look so sad. I have no idea, but I can't help but wonder, what did he say, what did he talk about? Because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Luke to record that, okay? And the crowd's reaction is classic. It's the typical response to one of Jesus' miracles. They're filled with awe, literally. Fear sees them all. That makes sense. But then their fear gives way to praise. And they realize that Jesus is a great prophet with power that rivals even Elijah. And through Jesus, they realize that God has paid them a visit. That is, God had come to take care of their needs. And this declaration of the people in verse 16 It's just thick with messianic implications. And the news of this event spread throughout the Jewish territory. And what do you think the mom's doing right now? Probably still crying, don't you think? But now not tears of loss, but probably great tears of joy. And by the way, folks, this is a picture of our future as well. Do you get that? Don't miss that. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a what? A shout, or your Bible may say with a loud command. And with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And what happens? The dead in Christ shall rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, or comfort one another with these words. And that same voice that raised that poor babbling young man from his coffin is going to be trumpeted into the depths of the sea and into the roots of the mountains and into the dust and lost molecules of God's physically dead children. And all who know Christ will hear it. Every Christian that has died in Christ will hear that voice and that trumpet. We all will hear that voice. And if I die before the Lord returns, I'm going to hear him say, Bill, get up. It's resurrection day. And the same intense compassion Jesus felt for that woman on that day, he feels for you on this day. And that's why he went to the cross to die for your sins. Becoming obedient to death. Even death on the cross as Greg shared in Philippians 2. And just like that centurion saw himself for who he really was, you need to see yourself as you really are. We are all sinners who cannot save ourselves. We've all fallen short of his glory. But if we see Jesus for who he really is, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the Creator and Redeemer. And if we come to Him repenting of our sin, accepting Him as our Lord, in obedience to the gospel, He will cleanse us of our sin. He'll give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will dwell within us. And Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, "...there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." And in Romans chapter 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. Meaning he'll raise us up just as he did this young man. You see, our hope is in Jesus and in no one else. Acts 4 verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which... We must be saved. It's only the name of Jesus. Salvation comes only through the name of Jesus. And contrary to popular opinion in our world, there are not many ways to heaven. There are not many ways to eternal life. There is one way. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The power of Jesus to heal from a distance, to raise the dead, the power of Jesus to give hope. Do you know him? Do you see yourself as you are truly? Do you see him as he really is? And if so, you've got the eyes of faith. If you need to make a decision today to come to Christ and accept Him as your Lord and Savior, to accept Him as the only one that can save you from your sins and give you eternal life, I pray you'd come today that you wouldn't put it off. If there are other decisions that you want to make and you would like to make those known publicly, then you can meet me right down front as we stand, as we sing.